1, verses 1 through 5 will be our primary text. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, the four Gospels, open up the New Testament. And uh, we are going to begin considering this Advent season. This particular uh, chapter, this particular chapter in John's Gospel in the Scriptures about what it means that the Son of God arrived in the flesh uh, 2,000 years ago. This is what we celebrate in this season. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and I'm glad it's Advent season. This is always a joy to get to consider the centrality of our faith, the central message, if you will, the central truth, the central reality of our faith that uh, sets it apart from any other perspective or worldview or religion or consideration is that there's this story of the Son of God, God himself, stepping into our situation, not just saving us out of something, but identifying with us in that. And, and so this is what we consider. Um, Advent begins in the darkness. This is uh, how Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge began her 1996 sermon at St. John's Church in Salisbury, Connecticut. It's a striking idea, but I think it's this obvious counterpoint that Advent begins in the darkness. It's a striking counterpoint to what we're told Christmas is meant to be about. When we look around us, it's about bright lights, happy thoughts, right? Being excited. Uh, we, we trade out our pumpkin spice stuff for like hot cocoa, right? Like that kind of creates these different kind of warm fuzzies. I was at the store yesterday. You know, all of those fall candle scents are now on sale and we have to buy new ones. I didn't know this, so I did because I want my house <laughs> to be Christmas now and not fall, right? There, there is this, this movement within our culture and society during Christmas time in our particular day and age that is happy and joyful and many of that is, is absolutely on point. Much of that is absolutely true. What a joy and what a joyful story we have to celebrate. See, this is why, though, Fleming Rutledge says that at Christmas time, we live this double life as Christians. To be sure, Christians always feel this tension, but we acutely feel this tension around a time like Christmas. She continues and went on to say, even as the season outside gets more exuberantly festive, those who observe Advent within the Christian community are convicted more and more each year by the truth of what's going on inside. Inside of the church, as she refuses cheap comfort and sentimental good cheer, Advent, she says, begins in the darkness. Now, while at first blush, this may seem like an incredible bummer to begin the Advent season thinking about the darkness, right? You're like, oh man, I was really hoping just that we'd start on a high note, right? But unless we begin in the darkness, we do a disservice to the story of Advent because this is where it takes place. It's actually the most hopeful way to begin. You see, it's often those impulses to avoid the darkness, to avoid the weightiness of this world, things like sin and death, or the toxicity in your family, or the frustration in your own soul, or those work dynamics that you just want to break from. When we try to avoid all of those things, we have to put on joy like makeup, don't we? We have to wear smiles like costumes. We have to sing songs with this sort of manufactured glee because that's what we do during this season. You see, it's only when we start in the darkness, when we acknowledge pain, when we acknowledge the problems, when we acknowledge the weakness and need that we have in this season and every season that we actually get, a, get clarity about what real hope looks like. 
about what real joy looks like, about life and love, all of these things we see breaking through, not only generally or in an emotional way, but the Christian story says all those things break through in the flesh. All those things come in real space and real time, and that's what I'd like to talk about this next month, this Advent season leading up to Christmas. I want to talk about what it means that the Son of God came in the flesh into the darkness, in the flesh, into the darkness. That's what Advent's all about. It's, it's about beginning or arrival, particularly about a prominent person arriving. And in the Christian narrative, it's about the Son of God arriving in the flesh. And historically, I'm not sure if you're aware of, this, aware of this, but I'm reminded of this every year, that Advent is not merely a time for us to look backward at Christ's first arrival, but also we're meant to look forward at His second coming as well. Because he, he has the first advent, and we look forward to the second advent, if you will, of him returning and setting all things to rights. So we celebrate that Jesus has come in the flesh, and we anticipate that Jesus will one day come again in the flesh. So in other words, this season is about remembering that Christianity is not a religion of sentiment. Christianity is not just a nice crutch that makes us feel good when things get sad and hard. Christianity is a reality. It's a truth. It's not just about our mere, merely about our feelings. It's a life of substance and of truth. It's about a faith that comes in the flesh. See, over the next month, we'll look at Christ's arrival from a number of different vantage points. We'll consider faith in the flesh. We'll look at vulnerability in the flesh. We'll look at grace in the flesh. And today, we'll consider light or truth in the flesh. Our primary passage will be John 1 during this journey. We'll look at verses 1 through 5 today to think about light, and we'll try to follow the flow of John's thinking about what he is saying about this word, or what he is saying about the beginning of our story. And so we'll organize our time together this way. The nature of the light from the beginning, the effect of the light in real space and real time, and then the power of the light over darkness. So we'll look at the nature of light, the effect of light, and the power of light. And it's to that end I desire to be available to God's Holy Spirit. So let's pray and ask for his help. Father, I don't want to talk about hard things. I just want to be happy most days. And most of the decisions I make and things I think about are to really just sort of conjure that experience. And it's, a, it's particularly true around this season. I want to take a break from reality so I can just feel joy. And so I'm, I'm really grateful, and I pray that you would encourage all of us today that you have a kind of joy that is able to withstand reality. Your joy doesn't need to be divorced from truth. We don't have to be ignorant to be hopeful. Your hope shows up in the middle of our pain and problems. And so may we be a people who are honest with you. Would you even show us in our own hearts and minds ways that we're running from the darkness or ignoring it today that perhaps we didn't realize? It's not because suffering somehow is more righteous than joy. It's because your joy shows up in suffering. We're not more righteous the more pain we have, but we see your righteousness is available to us even in our weakness. That's a really wonderful truth. And I pray that truth would settle my sisters' and brothers' hearts today on the wide spectrum that it is to be us today and the different emotions and stories and challenges and things that we're even considering about tomorrow already that is making us worried and fearful. 
So would your word center us? Would your word remind us of truth? And would your word be a light to our feet, lamp to our path? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Advent begins in darkness, and this is exactly where the apostle takes us. Look at verses 1 and 2 in John chapter 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So immediately, John, if you notice, takes us back to the beginning. More precisely, he takes us back to the beginning before the beginning. He takes us to the beginning before the beginning, before creation, when there was nothing. We're taken to eternity past through this language, which I think is hauntingly familiar if you're familiar with the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, which has guided our liturgy today, Genesis chapter 1. And in the beginning, before the beginning, what was there? Darkness. See, creation begins in darkness too. The poet who constructed Genesis 1 through 3 paints a picture about nothing and the nothingness, if you will, that was there except for God at the very beginning. Here's what Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 2 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, the earth was without form. The earth was void. It did not exist. Darkness was over this deep nothingness. Yet, in that darkness, the darkness before arrival, before advent, what does God do? He speaks. He speaks into that darkness. Famously, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light. And church, what was there? Light. He said, let there be light. And there was what? Light. Sometimes we get so familiar with this story, it doesn't surprise us anymore. That's amazing. That's amazing. He speaks into darkness, let there be light, and light shows up. God spoke into that darkness, and light made darkness flee. What Bible teachers and readers have observed now for generations is not just merely this action, but really the presence of the fullness of the Trinity at the beginning, before the beginning. The Father is the giver of light. The Spirit is hovering over the waters. And the Son, as the Word, is the power, the logic, the truth of God said. So Advent begins in darkness, but the Trinity is there. Creation begins in darkness, but the Trinity is there in the middle of that darkness. It's this theological heritage which John brings into his writing, Father, Son, and Spirit, present and active before and through creation. Yet now his focus in John 1 is on this idea of the Word. If you notice that, 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 that's not exactly a copy and paste from Genesis chapter 1. He's introducing this language of the Word. He's focusing our attention in John chapter 1 on the Word. That Greek word is the word logos, in Greek culture, in common parlance, that word had a ton of a wide variety of meaning. Through the Greek translation of the Old Testament, logos begins to convey, convey this idea of reason, of power, power for healing, for deliverance. You see this throughout the Old Testament that the word of the Lord came to a prophet, or the word of the Lord was spoken over. That's the logos. That is his revelation, his message. And according to biblical scholar D.A. Carson, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And he says the personification of that word makes it suitable then for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure to the person of his own son. So in short, when we read the word, what we are reading is God's divine self-disclosure. It's how he makes himself known. 
God makes himself known through his word. I mean, think about it. Our words convey things about our story, our situation, or just our mind that are an, uh, otherwise imperceptible. I don't know what's on your mind. You don't know what's on mine. And one way that we graciously draw near to one another is, is what? We speak. We talk. This is why sometimes when we're angry, we don't talk. I don't want you to know what's in my heart and my mind right now, right? Sometimes out of anger, sometimes out of protection, because you know, if you really knew what I was feeling and thinking right now, it would do more damage. So we instinctively know this idea that to speak is to disclose something about us to someone else that they otherwise would not know. How wonderful that God is like that, that he graciously, willingly speaks and discloses, he reveals himself to his people. In fact, God goes on display so much that in John chapter 1, verse 14, if you move your eyes there, if you're still in John chapter 1, that in verse 14, all of this builds to this crescendo that says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word that was in the beginning became human. Jesus then is the word of God. And Jesus himself then is the clearest and truest and most majestic disclosure of God himself. So in other words, what Jesus invites in his identity and even through his public ministry is if you want to know what my father is like, look at me. If you want to know what God is like, look at me because I am the divine self-disclosure of God. Whatever is true about me is true of my father. This is why it's so brilliant when Jesus says in John 15, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. We understand something about the Father's love by looking at the ministry, the life, the person of Jesus Christ. And from the beginning, the beginning before the beginning, in the darkness, John is saying what? The Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those three things John tells us about the nature of the Word, about the nature of this light, about the nature of this logos. From the beginning, the Son is light. That means He's truth. He's always been. The Son is light, the truth. He's in relationship with the Father, with God from the start. The Son, the light, the truth, the Word was God himself. So from the beginning, before the beginning, God has made the truth of himself known through the Word, through his divine self-disclosure. This tells us so much about God that I think we take for granted, that he wants you to know him, that he wants you to know the truth, that he wants relationship with you. Not something that we said, hey, can you be my friend? He's like, I want you to know who I am. He initiates this. And the truth is the reality and the power that flows from his character and his quality. It's fact, it's understanding, it's wisdom, it's hope, it's galaxies of knowledge. But more than anything else, the nature of the light from the beginning is this divine logic with a personality. It's the word. It's not just information. It's a person. It's not just knowledge of them, it's a person. And now John is telling us that that word, ultimately, that light becomes flesh and dwells among its pe- his people. So Advent begins in darkness, just like creation, and what we're told is that the truth is there. The truth is there in the middle of that darkness. And it's not just merely present in the beginning, but the word, the pre-incarnate Christ, God from the start, we say yes and amen, but the word, the light, is also active. Also active. That as, as, as soon as he wills something, the light has this effect in real space and real time. So he's not just present, but he is also active. How good that we have a God who is not just present, but also active. It's wonderful to have a God who is present with us. It is so much more majestic and beautiful and worthy of your worship that he is active. 
in your life and in this world. And the way that the word, the word bears witness from the beginning and gives shape to the quality and characteristic of God and his world is by speaking. And we see something about that. The way he speaks there is the way that he speaks now because we're told that the God, Jesus, that the Son of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what we read is true of the creation narrative. What we read is true of the Advent narrative is true of your story and mine as well. So in Genesis, we read that God revealed himself in creation by speaking through the word. Let there be light. And there was. The first thing he does is speak this light into existence. And then now John summarizes that whole story in verse 3. Look at John 1 verse 3. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then by verse 14, as we've already read, we, when he creates this stuff, when he, when he inhabits his creation this way, we see grace and we see truth. Jesus says that he is actually the truth himself. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So here in verse 3, John states that the truth has this effect positively and negatively. So if you think he's saying the same thing twice, you're right. He is. He's saying everything was made through him. And if you know anything that was made, it was made by him because nothing was not made that was not made through him. Right? Seems like a little bit of double talk, but he's trying to convey positively and negatively that everything has been made through this word. The word made all things. Nothing was made without the word. The truth has this effect in real space and real time. It's not merely ideas. Our faith is not just a collection of facts that are different from another collection of facts and ideas or hopes or wishes or beliefs. What we read is that we have a God who is dynamic, who steps into real space and real time, and he speaks and he even shows up in the flesh. Theologians describe the creation account as ex nihilo, which simply means that creation is created out of nothing, that God didn't have borrowed things, right? He didn't collect what was sort of there already and begin to make out of that. He makes out of nothing. He has no borrowed items, no used materials lying about that he goes, I bet I could create something with all that already exists. He constructs the world out of nothing. So like Advent, creation begins in the darkness, and it begins with nothing. And then God speaks. He reveals himself. He speaks truth. He makes all things. And the writer of Proverbs says that the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the, dip, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. In Colossians, Paul even says, he, that's Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The word creates all things, sustains all things. Wisdom, he says, establishes the heavens and the earth. Whatever we see and even the worlds we have yet to discover, understand, comprehend, or have even the fathomest idea of what's going on, he made all of that. He made all of that. It's enough to consider that God created everything you know about, right? Now think of everything you have left to discover, right, that you have no idea about, all it takes is walking into a bookstore and go, look at all this stuff I'm never going to know, right? As one comedian has put it. This is just a bunch of stuff I'll probably never know anything about. And God created every little bit of truth and beauty that is beheld in those books. Even what we don't know. And he creates all of that by disclosing himself, by revealing himself, by speaking through the word. 
You see, light has an effect in real space and real time. The truth has an effect. That's what we're really talking about. God's light is truth. When God speaks, things happen out of nothing, out of darkness, with no existing material, meaning not even with me and you moving in the right direction. While we were yet, what? Sinners. In other words, there was nothing good to work with there. He didn't start piecing together your good deeds and go, now I've saved you and I've deleted the bad and I've put together the good. He resurrected you from a dead state, which means dead in the original language, right? From nothing. Advent begins in darkness, but the truth is there and the truth makes all the difference. When God speaks truth, it has an effect in real space and real time. Now John does something beautiful, I think. He takes these massive ideas of theology and of creation and he's using, he's borrowing this language and structure from history. Now he breaks down, breaks away from that and speaks directly to his readers' situations. Speaks directly to them on principle. See, he's explained the nature of light and the effect of light. Now he shifts to help his readers understand how the light has enduring power in their lives. In other words, over the darkness in their life. Notice how he speaks in verse 4. In him that is in Christ, in the word, was life. And the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All of us face darkness. All of us. We know this because your battle, the Scriptures teach us, is not against flesh and blood, but against the dark principalities of this dark and evil age. Right? There's, it's this idea of spiritual warfare that you and I are in the middle of darkness, whether we are aware of it or not, every single day. We face darkness ourselves. We face uncertainty. We face nothingness. We face hopelessness in this ever-persistent way in this life. And here what John does through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he says what is true in the creation story, what is true in the Advent story is actually true in your story as well. That Advent begins in darkness, creation begins in darkness, humankind begins in darkness. As creator, it may be redundant to hear God described as life, but he does so. As creator, God is the ultimate life bringer, but there's more to that. John says that the word possesses and that, that the word possesses is the light of men or of mankind. He borrows the theme from creation. In other words, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and explains that the same God who spoke light into existence is himself the light of humanity, the one who reveals truth to this day. And when that light shines in people's lives, darkness flees in the same way that light fleed at the beginning of the Christian story in creation, in the arrival of the Son of Man in the flesh. When light shines, darkness still cannot overcome it. That's not a truth of our past. That's a truth of our God. That's not a truth of a story of generations ago. That's a truth in the reality of who God is because He has that light. He is that light. In other words, the power we see in creation is the power we experience in our own spiritual formation through God's living Word. There is power in the light, in the truth, in the word. So Advent begins in darkness. Creation begins in darkness. Humankind begins in darkness. But the truth and light shows up and makes all things come about. Truth shows up in that darkness. And what does John say happens? Life and light send the darkness away. 
Life and light send the darkness away, which sounds nice. That's a, that's a cool story. We can sing a song about that. But what's that even mean? What's that look like for Jesus to be the light and the truth in the flesh, in your life and in mine? What does it look like to walk in that power? First, I think is it's important to understand that light has this dual effect. Light tells you the truth every time, right? When light shows up, shadows are gone. Darkness is gone. Metaphorically and literally, it tells you what's there. That's all it does. It doesn't interpret it. It just says, here's what's happening. Here's what's in this room. Light tells us the truth. It shows us who we are. It reveals reality for better or for worse. And the Apostle John, he'd go on to write three more letters or epistles to the church, and he continues to hit this theme of light. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I think we instinctively know this. We know that light doesn't tell any lies. We know that light simply reveals the truth. We know closeness, in other words, or intimacy with God will expose us. We know this. It will tell us the truth about our sin, about our brokenness, about our culpability. And so when we sin, what do we do? We avoid the light. Right? We tell our group we're tired, but we also know we're guilty. We know if we show up in group, we might have to talk about that. We know even just being with other Christians, right? Because we're meant to be the light of the world together. We know truth is going to show up if we all show up together. And so I know there's a discomfort in that. I don't open my Bible when I'm caught and trapped in sin, when I know that there's guilt and shame, because I know it's going to tell me the truth about it, and that's going to be hard. See, in the darkness, there's a promise whispered to us. Do you know what that promise is? I'll hide you. I'll protect you. Nobody has to know. Nobody ever has to find out about this. The darkness promises to cover you. Keeping a secret Staying in the darkness, it feels safe, doesn't it? It feels like the thing I'm ashamed about, the thing I'm frustrated with, the thing I hate about myself will not be told, it will not be known, it will not be disclosed, and therefore I won't have to face that pain. Darkness promises to protect us from the pain that we feel being exposed, from being known as a sinner, being treated that way. And perhaps, let's be honest, some of us probably have stories to tell about why that's really dangerous. Why it's really dangerous to step into a religious community and be honest about your pain. Because the light has been used as a weapon against us. The light we know, in fact, we're told can be dangerous for our souls. And this is why many of us, I think, have never told our groups our full story. You know what I mean? Like we've started from birth all the way till now, but there have been parts we've left out because I don't know if they're ready. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. There's sins that we've never confessed to anyone because we know if it shows up in the light, that's going to be painful. 
Do you see what I mean? I think instinctively we know that the light's going to tell the truth. The light is going, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to something where we have to deal, where we have to own up. Because the light takes away our hiding places, which feel kind of comfortable, which feel like maybe the last safe haven we have is the darkness. Light makes us face in this reality and this devastation of sin. And I want you to know, this is a part of our story. Just as much as the light pushing back the darkness, hiding is also a big part of our story. See, when our first parents sinned, we're told that God walked toward them. Walked toward them. And as they heard his footsteps in the garden, which I wish we had time to talk about that. <laughs> his footsteps in the garden, what are we talking about? Uh, someday. Genesis 3, verse 8. It says, the man and his wife, when they heard this, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The irony in this is when you try to hide from a God who knows everything and can see everything, it makes no sense, but we do it anyway, don't we? In fact, they even hid behind trees that he created. He made those things. He made them for a particular purpose, and they took it and used it for something else, right? And this is where religious community needs to repent, because he has made light so that we would walk in holiness and in fellowship. And if we have taken light and weaponized it and used it for pain and for hiding and for shame, that's not why he gave us that. That's not why he's given us the light. That's not why he has invited us into the light. I wonder if you've experienced this, that whispered promise of the darkness, rooted in shame. See, shame is the story of self-despisement and self-loathing. Shame says that you are bad and lost and beyond redemption, so just stay in the dark because nobody's going to want to meet the real you. Nobody's going to accept that person. You see, in our isolation, in the darkness, this is Satan's work of spiritually gaslighting you, of telling you that the darkness is safe and the light is dangerous. He's done it to the whole community. See, in our isolation, in the darkness, nothing actually gets healed. It just festers. Nothing is known because darkness is the opposite of truth. See, the thing that darkness can never do for you is love you. It can never love you. It can never take care of you. The darkness does not tell us the truth. And the truth is something that actually sets us free from things like shame. As author Brene Brown explained in 2012 when she was given a TED Talk, she said, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Suggest to you that darkness is the Petri dish. The place where secrecy and silence and judgment all fester. Darkness promises to give you protection, but it costs you dearly. Darkness doesn't protect, it only destroys. This is what makes the word, the truth, the light so powerful. And why I think the Christian community really has something to learn about its Lord that it claims. See, reflecting back on 1 John chapter 1, John told his readers that the light provides fellowship, but not simply because it tells the truth, but because it heals. Please let that settle. In other words, that the light doesn't just tell you the truth about you, the light tells you the truth about Jesus, too. 1 John 1, verse 7, which we've already read, but just a reprise here, is that the blood of Jesus Christ in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse us from all sin. 
In other words, that when a fellow believer steps into the light, it is not the responsibility of the rest of the church to highlight that sin and to say, I knew you were hiding something. And then to use that as a way of coercing different behavior or of manipulating them even to service in the church. But actually meant to point to the blood of Jesus says, actually, I'm so glad you stepped into the light. Do you know that his blood will cleanse you from a guilty conscience? Do you know that he will restore you? Do you know that he will heal you? Because the light doesn't just tell the truth, the light heals that's when you know you've stepped into the light of the word of Jesus Christ. It's because it doesn't just expose you, it also heals you and helps you and weeps with you and cries with you and suffers with you and identifies with you in your pain. See, Jesus the light will always tell you the truth about you, about your brokenness, about your sin, about your death. (laughs) But he will always tell you the truth about himself too. Always. He will also tell you the truth about who he is and what he has done, that he forgives, that he loves, that he promises resurrection, that he will heal you. You see, church, the light was never meant to only tell you one part of the story. It was meant to expose you so that you could walk in the light so you could be healed. That's what the darkness can never do. That's what the darkness doesn't even have a conscience to do. doesn't even have a desire to do. It cannot do because it doesn't love you. That light, that truth then ought to do something to the church community. It should empower us not to be a bunch of judgmental people that simply point out the sins of a watching world, but to be sure speaks the truth, but we do so how? With love, by telling the truth about sin and also the truth about our Savior. That's how you know you're walking in the light of Jesus. The light of the religion only says one of those things, and that's not real light. It's just another form of darkness. See, second, of where this leads us is that the word Jesus Christ also leads to flourishing. You cannot flourish in the darkness. You can only flourish in the light. See, we don't often think about truth leading us to flourishing. Usually we think that flourishing is a byproduct of being free, of being autonomous, of being able to choose our own kind of happiness and direction, that that will satisfy us. Truth often feels a little bit like death, doesn't it? I mean, this is why we hide a lot, is because it feels like death. It feels like if people really knew this, then everything that's good about my life would be over. If I confessed this sin to my spouse, if I told my children the truth about their father, if, if my parents really knew what was going on, if my church family really knew, it feels a lot like death. Well, in large measure, it's because it is. The truth is a kind of death. Truth invites us to die before it invites us to become come alive. Notice how Paul puts it to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3, verse 3 through 4. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So first, he says, you've died. Spiritually speaking, that means that you are leaving behind a former way of living, a life according to the flesh, as Paul has written about in Romans. Specifically, it's dying to ourselves and the powers of this world. So the truth is always inviting you to die to yourself and to die to the powers of this world. So it is a little bit like death. Second, though, he says that your life is hidden with Christ. And third, he furthers that point by saying that Christ actually is your life. So when you die to yourself, Jesus then becomes your life. He becomes central. He begins to define you. He is in control. He is your joy. 
In fact, Paul goes on to say in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The light loves you. The darkness does not. See, when we say that the word is life, when we say that the the truth is life, when we say that Jesus Christ is our life, we're saying that in him we found true fulfillment. We find true flourishing. We find our wholeness or our shalom, our completeness. See, when our first parents sinned, did you know that God clothed them? When they said, did you know we're naked? He said, who told you you were naked? This was part of the dissonance that the Lord identifies as an understanding that they had done something, that they had sinned. You see, in the garden, God, uh, the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. In other words, God made a sacrifice. A death took place. So in order for them to walk in the light, death did need to happen. It was a substitutionary death. An animal died in their place, and they are now physically and spiritually covered in God's grace. In this, we see the power of God's truth. God doesn't overlook their sin. Right? He looks right at it and tells the truth about it. But then he makes a way by love to heal them. He has a sacrifice made in their place so that fellowship and healing and restoration and forgiveness can take place in the light. However, there's even more. There was a cost. There was another level of death, if you will. There were two trees in the garden. A lot of attention goes to the first, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But at the end of the story of Genesis chapter 3, There's another tree that is highlighted again. It's the tree of life. And Adam and Eve actually get kicked out of the garden. And one of the reasons that we're told in Genesis 3 that they're kicked out of the garden is so they don't eat from the tree of life. It's even guarded by an angel so that they don't do it. They get kicked out of the garden. Angel guards this tree. Why? Because God didn't want them to be trapped in their sin. Death now becomes this opportunity for resurrection, for healing. This is why he makes that promise that we reflected upon during our communion time, that one day the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that he would make a way for eternal life without sin. See, if they ate of that tree, they would have eternal life with sin. He protects that tree so that they can have eternal life without sin. That's what light does. Light tells the truth of the brokenness, and light makes a way. See, humanity begins in the darkness, just like creation and just like Advent. This is how Jesus meets us on the cross, in the darkness. Luke tells us that it was noon. It was the middle of the day, but Luke 23 verse 44 says there was darkness over the whole land. Advent begins in darkness. Once again, light was showing up in the middle of darkness. Once again, God was present and active, making hope out of nothing, hanging on a cross by his word, by his truth. You see, this season, you need not put on light like some sentiment. You don't need to put it on like a costume of the season. You don't need to wear truth like makeup. You don't need to act like you face the sorrow just to be happy at the next party you attend. You can actually look right at the pain and problem and frustration and sin and guilt and shame, and you can have hope and joy that light shows up in that darkness. That, that ignorance is not your hope. That ignoring the problem is not your greatest route to joy. But that light shows up 
is your hope. Light shows up is your joy. That light has actually come in the flesh, and the Scriptures tell us what? Darkness has not overcome it. And in the same way that darkness has, did not overcome God in creation, in the same way that God did not over, or darkness did not overcome light at the advent of Christ, is the same way that darkness will not overcome the light of Jesus Christ that has been revealed to you and to me. See, Advent begins in darkness. But when truth in the flesh shows up, he brings life out of nothing. Advent begins in darkness but it ends in light. And so I'm going to encourage you to ask of the Lord, where is darkness still persisting in my life? Where am I trusting those whispers of darkness? It may not be extreme. Darkness may feel like a really heavy blanket to kind of put over what you're experiencing, but there are plenty of things telling us that secrecy and silence and isolation will make you happier than walking in the light as he is in the light. And what the scriptures are telling us is that's a lie from hell. That's not true. Your hope is not in the darkness. Your hope is in the light. Because in the light, you know the truth, and in the light, you will be healed because light is not just a story. It's not just a fact. Light has come in the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we often don't believe that. And sometimes for really good reasons. Because the last time we were honest, it cost us dearly. The last time we were honest with perhaps a small group or another friend who is a believer or another spiritual leader. Our sin was thrown back in our face, caused shame and burdens to be carried that Jesus never told us to carry. And so we as the church, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for using light like a weapon to power up on people and not the place where your healing happens, where grace shows up, where love wraps us up and covers us in your righteousness. Would you graciously transform us into a community that walks in the light as you are in the light so we can have fellowship with one another and so that we can find healing in the blood of Jesus? I pray for my sisters and my brothers carrying heavy burdens this season. Walking in darkness in ways that just feels a lot safer than being honest or stepping into the light of truth. I pray even now your Holy Spirit would minister to them. Perhaps it's not time, perhaps tomorrow is not even the day, but would you begin to woo them into the light? Help them to lay down heavy burdens of shame and of guilt. Of decades of being told whatever they are in the middle of cannot be healed, can't be forgiven, can't be transformed, or doesn't even matter. God, forgive us in our culpability in this. We haven't loved our brothers and sisters well. 
We haven't loved each other well. So we haven't been walking in the light. So I pray by your Holy Spirit, would you forgive us, heal us, help us to be a people of light that speak the truth, that reveal the truth of sin, but also reveal the truth of our Lord and Savior who loves and heals and forgives and restores so that the world would know the truth about who you are, the God who speaks and darkness cannot overcome it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.